Uh, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. I'm going to read uh, verse 6 through 16 this morning. First Samuel 18, 6 through 16. Here we go. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and with songs of joy, with musical instruments. Remember that showdown with Goliath, just to pause for a second, that showdown with Goliath marked um, it, it, was a, it was a very decisive battle. If they had lost, they would have been the slaves to the Philistines. So a lot was riding on that battle with Goliath. That's why the women are coming out and singing these songs, because it meant we're free. We've, we've overcome this foe. Um, and here's what they say. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was really angry at the, and this saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did so day, day by day. And Saul had a spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of thousands, or of a thousand, excuse me. And he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Lord, would you please illuminate this passage to our eyes in a personal way, in a cleansing way, in a healing way. Show us um, our own hearts as we look in the mirror here of this passage. Show us what's going on with us, and Lord, uh, move in our hearts and our minds to move closer to you, to give a little bit more to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we've been studying the life of David on Sundays, and we've been particularly interested recently in this section, uh, section chapter 18 through 19, marks one of the more volatile times in young David's life. Um, he's living with, after this battle with Goliath, Saul did not let him go back home. Saul wanted him to stay in the palace or in Saul's house uh, amongst Saul's people. So David was very, very close to Saul at this point. And the more, um, uh, well, the more success that David had, the more Saul began to hate him. And Saul, be well, Saul made a decision to try to get rid of him. Saul's trying to kill him. You can imagine what it's like for David to be living in a home with someone who is actively trying to destroy you, wants your demise. Imagine the stress, the volatility, all of those things that you'd be experiencing. That's what David's experiencing. 
And David, through the protection and self-sacrifice of his best friend Jonathan, who just so happened to be the king, king Saul's son and heir to the throne, David escapes through this protection. And the next section we're about to get into um, records David as he's on the run from Saul in the wilderness. He's out of Saul's house and Saul's trying to kill him and hunt him down like, a, like an animal throughout the wilderness of Israel and the surrounding areas. We'll get into all of that soon. But before we move on into that section, um, it really would be wrong for us not to pay attention, as tempting as it would be not to pay attention, it's, it'd be wrong for us not to pay attention to the ugliness and the downfall of a guy like Saul. Um, why? Why do we want to focus on, on this? Well, to be direct, because the Bible presents Saul's life as a cautionary tale. The Bible presents Saul's life as a cautionary tale to all of us. And as much as we, when we typically when we read the story of David, we, re, we really like to imagine that we are the David in the story. That we're the ones that are David. But, and, and, but the reality is that David is labeled as the Lord's anointed. The word in Hebrew is Mashiach, Mashiach, which is pointing to the ultimate anointed, the ultimate Messiah, the Christ, is speaking to Jesus. You and I are most likely not the David in the story. As hard as that is to hear, we've got to get our placing right here. We are probably more than likely Saul. And I know we don't like to hear that, but if we can put aside our defense mechanisms, if we can put aside our denial and be safe enough to face what the Bible is saying about us, this kind of um, insult that the Bible gives to us, well, then we can be honest enough to realize that we actually naturally resonate with Saul more than we resonate with the character of David in a lot of ways. When you read through this, you can experience, you can probably know, I know what it's like to feel that way. Likely, David is not who you want to be, and that's okay. I, I, um, or excuse me, likely David is who you want to be, and Saul is not who you want to be, and that's probably right and good. That's probably a good thing. But Saul is who we actually resemble and who we most often resonate with. So before we leave this section for the next three Sundays, we're going to look at three downfalls in Saul's character that mark the destruction of his life. And we're doing this so that we can learn about them and therefore learn about ourselves. So we can learn to recognize these character defects, to identify them in, in our own lives, and then to allow God to cleanse us from them, to bring us to repentance and to move in us and to cleanse us so we can move more to be in the image of Jesus in the, to the anointed and leave the old man, Saul, behind us. Although these three character defects, jealous, we're going to talk about jealousy, idolatry, and control, although they overlap and contribute to one another, I think they fuel one another and, and give each other momentum, I think it's helpful for us to isolate them. So today we're going to talk about jealousy, and you can see it as bright as day in our passage. Um, here's, how the, the, here's how the new, um, um, the new international version puts verse 8. Let me... And verse 9. Let me read this to you in the, in the NIV. It says, Saul was very angry. This refrain, that's the song that the women were singing, galled him. And he said, they have credited David with tens of thousands. 
he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And here's what I want you to focus on. Here's how the NIV puts it. And from that time, from that moment on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. From that moment on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. And then if you look at verse 12, it says, Saul was afraid of David, and here's why. Because the Lord was with David, but the Lord had departed from Saul. That's the feeling that he's feeling in his heart. So from the day that Saul heard those women singing that song, from that moment, Saul was jealous of David. Why? Because Saul knew. He's aware, according to the text, He knew, he was fully aware that the Lord was with David and yet had departed from him. God was giving David favor, the favor that he wanted, and God was saying, no, I'm not giving it to you. You should be starting to feel some familiar feels right now. So here's what we have. Saul knows that it is not God's will that Saul or his family lead Israel. I'm not going to use you, Saul, or anyone from your family to lead the nation of Israel any longer, but it is my will that this young boy will become king and lead Israel. Jonathan also saw it. Remember, we talked about this. Jonathan knew it, and Jonathan accepted it. Jonathan had made a covenant with David, and he even took off his royal robe and put it on David, took out his sword and handed it to David in an act of submission, an act of, I see God's hand on you. Even though I'm next in line to be king, I know it's going to be you, and I'm falling in line with this. That was Jonathan's response. Saul cannot do this. He does not have the inner strength the character to be able to step aside and surrender this to God he can't do it Saul's so swept away by his own insecurity that he decides to actively oppose what he knows God's will is think of that talk about the power of jealousy he decides to actively oppose what he sees God's will is and it all starts with the poison of feeling jealous Let me show you a few things about jealousy here in our text. I'm going to show you three things. One, jealousy impairs clear thinking. Saul's brain goes offline at some point, okay? Jealousy, set number two, kills true love. And finally, we we are going to see the biblical remedy for this thing called jealousy. First, jealousy impairs clear thinking. I think the most extreme cases, personally, uh, that jealousy can lead to kind of a spiritual or even mental kind of an illness. Uh, Just look at Saul. He's an extreme case, an extreme example. At some point, he becomes so consumed with jealousy that in spite of enormous damage that it will do to himself, in spite spite of it not even being a practical or logical thing or a politically good thing, he still decides to try to kill an innocent person, to try to take someone out who's innocent. And you can see his mental defenses start to slowly go in phases. At a certain point, Saul decides that he's going to get rid of David, but in the beginning, he still has the wherewithal to know that if I go after David openly, it's going to be detrimental to me politically. So he starts to, he does this in kind of um, covert ways. Everyone loves David. My own son loves David, Saul would say. David's a hero to the nation. 
He just killed Goliath and set us free from a, a, a future of slavery to this other nation. So if I go after him openly, it's going so, to eat into my social capital. It's just not a good political move. So I'll, do, I'll try to keep this, I'll try to do it in some natural way. So he tries to kill David subtly. This is what it means that he made him commander of a thousand and sent him out on these very risky military uh, missions hoping that David would get killed. Hoping that it would take care of itself naturally if I put him in this kind of a position. If you keep reading, I, I didn't want to put the whole chapter on the board and read it, but if you keep reading chapter 18, you'll find that, he, that Saul comes up with another scheme. He, he makes his daughter, Michal, fall in love with David. He arranges this marriage. The problem was back then that... Um, uh, well, the, frankly, the problem was that David was poor. And back then, you paid the father of the woman that you were going to marry a dowry, a, a bride price, um, in congruence with the position or the class that, that she was from. Saul, obviously, is from a very wealthy class. David didn't have a hope or a prayer to be able to pay him what he needed to, to earn McCall, Saul's dad. So this was all a power play. Saul says, okay, I'll tell you what. I want you to go out on these very risky battles against the Philistines and bring me back a hundred Philistine foreskins. If you, think, if you think scalping someone is weird. Anyways, um, David goes out and he brings back 200. He's just blessed. God, he's just got the, the Midas touch. God's just giving him success. He's going out and he's coming in. And here's the cycle. The more, the more tasks Saul gives to David, the more God blesses David, the more popular David gets, the more jealous Saul becomes, and the more he just stops caring what anyone thinks about it. At some point, it just becomes outright rage and he just doesn't care anymore. He's throwing spears. Or if you read... Um, I think it's verse 1 of the next chapter, he just outright says to his servants, which is basically Saul's administration, and his son, I want to kill David. He just comes out and says it at this point. So you can see this building, jealousy is compounding and crowding out common sense and reason in his mind. I think of that line in Lord of the Rings where Gandalf is staring down his... Um, Pure, Saruman, Saruman the white, and Saruman has folded and gone to the evil side, Sauron's side. And it's coming in this conversation, Gandalf's starting to realize that Saruman's turned. And finally, when it hits him, there's this famous line where he says, uh, well, Saruman says to Gandalf, it would be wise of us, friend, to join with Sauron. And you remember the line? Gandalf, the gray, but much wiser than Saramon the White says, tell me, friend, when did Saramon the Wise abandon reason for madness? In other words, you've lost your ever-loving mind. <laughs> and it ensues this huge battle. That's kind of what's going on here. At some point, he tries to contain it. He tries to manipulate it. He tries to control it. He's made a decision to try to get rid of David, but he's trying to do it under false pretenses. And finally, it gets to the point where he's just so enraged with jealousy, now, it's, now his, his brain is clicked off. Let me, let me show you. Uh, let me read to you James chapter 3. 
James says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. Jealousy, wisdom. Jealousy fights against wisdom. Notice that James here is contrasting jealousy and wisdom. That has boggled my mind. Why? Well, because jealousy interferes with your ability to think straight. You, you, you lose common sense. You lose reason. You lose wisdom. Jealousy distorts your perception of reality. That's how dangerous it is. Certainly, we see this in the life of Saul. Certainly. His perception of reality is so distorted by jealousy that it gives way to this kind of demonic thing, this demonic influence. It twists him and influences his life. He's, his thinking is, is impaired, and now he's acting out his twisted reality into the real world against David. So James says that jealousy is the opposite of wisdom. Isn't that interesting? Jealousy is the opposite of wisdom because jealousy kills heavenly wisdom, the heavenly wisdom that we so desperately need. If anybody needed wisdom in this point, it's Saul. He's the, he's, he's the king of the nation. He needs wisdom. Leaders need wisdom. This was fighting against what he needed the most. He let it overtake him. How does it do that? How does it do that practically? By making someone incredibly self-absorbed. Making someone incredibly self-absorbed. Um, and where am I getting this? From the text. Look at this. Look at verse 8 with me again, and, and I think you'll see it. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. Look at this. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me. This is the equation of jealousy. He, but me. Them, but me. She, but me. This is the perspective of jealousy. Jealousy is that voice that says, look at that person's blessing. It makes me not like them even more. Why? Because it should be me. That should be me. That's what I deserve. I should have that. In its simplest form then, according to our text, jealousy is something in your heart that when you see other people's blessings, other people's joys, other people getting the things that they want or they're hoping for, it's a stab to your own heart. It's a stab to you because you either think that those things should be yours or if you have those things already, you think, well, they don't deserve to have what I have because I worked hard for it and they, they didn't work as hard as me. Um, so I play the piano wrongly. Uh, several, several people over the years have said, uh, hey, can you teach my son or my daughter how to play the piano? And I always say, sure, if you're okay with me teaching them completely wrong. Because I've never had formal training. I, I don't, but God has given me a gift. He's given me a blessing. I play by ear. And so in high school, um, when I was really getting into the piano, so my mom tried to get me into the piano when I was, all throughout when I was a kid. I never, I could never do it. And then 
truth, here's the truth. In high school, I met Jesus. And my heart was different. And I wanted to express myself to Jesus through music. And I didn't know how. And so all of a sudden, the piano became an outlet for me. It was a good and a bad thing. It sounds so great. Oh, that's so wonderful. It was, except for I started ditching my classes. I started going to the practice rooms instead of going to my classes and playing the piano. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I'd stay up all night. I wouldn't do my homework. My parents had to take the piano away from me until my grades went back up. It's true. Because I could not, in my classes, I was listening to my teachers and I was practicing muscle memory and formation with my, with my hands because I was just obsessed with this and I would stay up all night not because I wanted to learn the piano but I would stay up all night true I would truly worshiping God in a really um, horrible way I mean if you would listen to me back then God bless my my mother who her her room was adjacent to the piano this really out of tune piano so here's a beautiful I'll just tell you a story it we'll get back around to this but a janitor in my high school knew that I was trying to learn the piano. And he, um, a janitor in my high school knew I was trying to learn the piano. They had told him, there's this old piano in the nursery. We want you to get rid of it. He called me and said, hey, I know you're trying to learn the piano. There's this piano that they've told me to take to the dump. Do you want it? I'll bring it to your house instead. And so I asked my mom, and she said, sure, come over. And so he brings over in a truck and trailer this, this upright piano. It was painted lime green with a rubber ducky painted on it and a teddy bear. It was a nursery piano that had been sitting in the high, school, the high school's basement for years. So I bought spray paint, black spray paint, and we had this um, renovated addition off to our uh, on the side of our house, and that's where we put it. It wasn't heated, and I spray painted the whole thing jet black. And then I I remember, and it was wildly out of tune. But I would sit out there in the cold. I would make myself every night hot chocolate, not to drink, but to warm my hands. And I would we had. We had tapes back then. Have you heard of that? It's plastic. It's got like this ribbon in there and you can rewind. And I would listen and I would warm my hands in, at night and I would try to mimic what I was hearing. And I would warm and try to mimic so I could worship God because I was so in love with the, the Lord had just gripped me really intensely in this time of my life. Fast forward, I went to, to Bible college. I went to um, uh, Calvary Chapel Bible College in Southern California um, well, I, okay, rewind, sorry, we're on the tape thing. So within, within a very short amount of time, I was playing, I was leading worship for my church. I, I had, God had blessed me, and I had learned very quickly. Within a year, I was leading worship for my youth group and for my church, and doing it well, okay? And then I went to Bible college, and I became the worship leader for the whole school. And I remember um, this and here's the point. Here's where we get back to, we're back. This uh, fellow student came up to me after about two years of this. She came up to me and she said, I just have to confess to you that I have just hated you. And I said, oh, thank you for sharing. And she said, no, I, look, let me explain. I am classically trained. I have been working at what you do my entire life and I know you're a fake. A fake. A fake. I know you don't know what you're doing. 
And it makes me so angry that God would use you and not me. And I just want to confess that to you and release it to the Lord and be cleansed from it. And we became wonderful friends after that moment. Jealousy is that what makes you think that everyone else's situation is about your situation. That's what jealousy does. Jealousy is that which makes you think that everyone else's situation is really about you. He but me. In jealousy, whatever is happening to other people is about you. That's how it distorts your way of thinking. Secondly, it also, it also destroys your, your love. It kills your ability to love. Uh, let me re- read you another verse in the New Testament. This is Romans chapter 12. It says, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. It's a famous verse. It's a great verse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Let me just, I'm going to propose to you without having to prove it. We, I, I want you to want to put this out there. That is, that is love in action. When you can rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, when you do that, you are loving them. You are operating in love. And I want to say, you're operating from the fullness of your heart. You're operating the way you were meant. This is is life to the full. To rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. That's, That's true living. It's painful living but it's true living. It's vulnerable, but it's living from your heart to the full. When you live life to the full, you're able then, you're enabled to rejoice with those who rejoice. But jealousy shuts this down because it makes what hap- what's happening for others really about you. So when your friend comes to you and says, I'm getting married, Jeff proposed. And on the outside you say, I'm so happy for you but on the inside you're incensed you don't deserve to be married to Jeff only I can make Jeff happy right I'm thinking of a soap opera I watched when I was a kid or hey man we're going on another vacation to Europe again isn't that so cool and you say cool but you're really mad he wastes his money on himself What you're saying is, I'm the one that deserves that kind of money. I could spend my money. If I had those kind of resources, I would spend them correctly. Right? Or, hey, I made partner. Great. I worked a billion times harder than you. How come you made partner and I don't? I'm more qualified. See, jealousy says, why are they up there there and I'm still down here? (laughs) That's what jealousy says. Why is that? That's the voice of jealousy. The voice of jealousy says, I deserve a better life than the one I have. It's, it's the voice, and you can just see it throughout Saul's life, it's the voice of self-pity. If you're looking at the world through the mindset that says, God is unfair, life is unfair, I've been held down, these kind of people are holding me down, I'm being held back by, or by this or by that, at, at the middle of all of that is the voice that says, I should be up there, but I'm stuck down here, and it's not fair. And maybe it's not. There might be truth to that. But that attitude will stop you from, from rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. You won't be able to live to the full. See, 
Not only are you already unhappy, think of the compounding. Not already are you already unhappy that life isn't going the way it should for you. Now you're more unhappy that life is going the way it should for somebody else. It's double bad. Jealousy kills wisdom. You can't think straight. But it also kills love and it kills joy. It kills full living when we compare ourselves to others. And that's what's going on with Saul. He can't be happy with the blessings that David was getting. He can't be happy. He can't think to himself, God, maybe God is giving this to David because it'd be better for the people who, are leading, who I'm leading. That's loving to the full. I, I always think of the, the book, the Dickens book, The Tale of Two Cities. Where at the end of it all, this, this man that loves this woman who's married to somebody else, I won't ruin it for you, I, I think, you finished it, okay. This, this man who loves this woman who's married to somebody else, he is caught in a French prison, the, the guy that's married is caught in a French prison, and the man that's in love with his wife loves her so much that he wants her to be happy, even if it means not being with him. So he sneaks into the French prison and he secretly lets this guy escape and he takes his place in the, as a guillotine. Even though he loves this guy's wife, he loves her so much he wants her to be happy with her husband. It's selfless. I think, gosh, isn't that true loving uh, leadership? If another person is better than me for Calvary Wallingford, then by all means, let, let him... Let, him take the, let me take second. Uh, or um, the best example is John the Baptist. Remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus? He must become greater and I must become less. What can allow you to do that? Love. Being secure enough in where God has put you and know that it's not all about me. It's about others involved. It's about the people that I'm leading. It's about the people that I love. And if something is better for the people that I love, even if it's not me, then I'm going to give it to somebody else. Have you noticed? Are you, okay, jealousy doesn't get a lot of, a lot of PR. It doesn't get a lot of press. We don't, we don't consider it as one of the big ones, right? Do we? We don't think of jealousy as like, ooh, careful, that one could get you. But are you starting to notice how dangerous jealousy is and how dangerous it can be? It has the power to make a monster. Saul started out this, remember when we met Saul? He was this humble young man. This humble young man that didn't want to be in the spotlight. He was this servant just trying to bless his dad. Um, and he had the favor of God in his life. And now jealousy has twisted and contorted him into this murderous monster that's trying to kill an innocent person at the expense of himself and the people who he's leading. It's, it's serious business. Don't underestimate the power of jealousy. Okay, let me... How did Satan become Satan? Why is Satan trying to destroy you, God's good creation, the people that God loves, because he's jealous. This is Isaiah 14, 14. This is Lucifer, this beautiful angel meant to worship God who's making it all about him. He says, I will become like God. I will rise to become the most high. I should be up there. Why am I down here? It's not enough that I've been made one of the most beautiful created beings in the universe by God. 
I want his spot. And he destroys God's creation still by whispering and injecting the same poisonous lie into our hearts. You deserve more. You deserve more. They got, they got what you deserve. Or ha, they got what they deserved. God loves them more than, than he loves you, clearly. How come they're blessed and all you do is suffer? Your life has been one endless hit of suffering and suffering and suffering, and yet they're blessed? You should be up there. And it distorts and twists our reality till soon we're doing the opposite of Romans 12. We're rejoicing when people weep, and we're weeping when people are rejoicing. What's the remedy then? Number three, what's the remedy? Love. Let me read this to you. This is 1 Corinthians 13. You know it as the chapter of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does, is not jealous. Love does not envy. God is love. Think of this. God is not jealous. Think of that. The Bible says he's jealous in a healthy way in a sense that I don't want other things to hurt you. When sin or idolatry or he knows it will distort, he knows it will hurt, he knows it will pull you apart. He's jealous the way a husband would be jealous for his wife that's being threatened. He moves in to protect, moves in to separate and, and be a barrier between. There's that. But love does not envy in this it's all about me self kind of a way. Love, God is at his core selfless. Where was it most clearly shown that God is not Jealous, God is not love. Well, on the cross, of course. Think of the story. Think of the whole story. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, right, comes to earth and dies on a cross. He lives this perfect life and dies the most ignoble death imaginable, the most painful death imaginable, the most cursed bless, uh, death imaginable. And what is in his heart when he's crushed and pressed? What does he say when he's on the cross? <laughs> does he say, I should be, why am I down here? This is wrong. I'm God for crying out loud. I should be exalted. No. He says things like, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He says things like, today you'll be with me in paradise. How can you do that? How can you have that kind of fortitude in life? Well, look what Jesus said back in John chapter 17. Jesus prays this incredible prayer. I'll, I'll pray it to you, but I really want you to, I, I should have put it up there, but I didn't. Here's what he says. Listen carefully. Here's the heart of Jesus. He says, this is his private prayer time, and it's recorded for us. He says, Father, I desire... Jesus, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am. Think about that for a second. That's in the heart of Jesus Christ. I desire that they would be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given to me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. Listen, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. 
And these, my followers, know that you, have, that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Why? Bec- that, so that the love with which you have loved me, they may experience it too. I, th- I'm sorry, this just gets me. This never gets old for me. Do you hear what he's saying? Let me just see if I can paraphrase. Father, I want them to have, I desire for them to have what they, the, exactly what they do not deserve. That is the heart of the God that we are following. I'm sorry, it just gets me. In fact, he would go on to say, I want them to have what I have earned and what I deserve. That's what's driving me. I, I would delight in these people that are filled with evil to get the glory that only I deserve. That would make me so happy if they could have what I get, even though they don't deserve it. And to ensure that they do, I'm going to take the hell that they deserve on myself on the cross. (laughs) Selah. Just pause for a second and let that hit you. Love is not jealous. Selah. I achieved all this, Jesus says, and I do not begrudge them sharing the throne with me. I achieved all of this, and I don't begrudge them sharing the throne with me. See, jealousy says, I don't want, the, I don't want them to have what I deserve what I've earned, and I don't want them to have what they don't deserve. Love says the opposite. Do you see how extravagant the love of God is? It's limitless. Do you see why the Bible describes God in Psalm 145 as saying he's abounding in steadfast love? It's just, he's rich in it. To the point where we would say, I delight in someone who doesn't deserve it, getting the love that, I, that I'm made for. Jesus Christ loves to see people get what they don't deserve. It's who he is. This is the person that you are following. You know, we delighting in getting something that we don't deserve. You know what we call that? It's called grace. Undeserved, unmerited abundant, abounding favor. Favor. Even when you don't deserve it, even when you didn't earn it, even when you've, did, you've earned the opposite. And it's not like, oh yeah, I'll give it out because this is the only way to make it work. No, he delights in it. He delights in giving it to you. And this is the only cure. Mark my words, this is the only cure for the ravenous poison of jealousy in your and mine heart. When you and I understand, when you understand that your story is that in Jesus, you are getting what you do not deserve and he rejoices in that. When you understand that, then and only then will you be able to rejoice with people who rejoice and weep with people who weep. The only, you, you dare not say, 
okay, I, I better stop being jealous. And when you are, it won't work for you to go, bad Christian. That won't work. You've got to soak yourself in God's love for you. Saul never deserved the throne in the first place, right? There's a little perspective. And neither did David for that matter. It was all an act of grace. Jesus saves and delights in sharing his glory with you, with us. The most vile sinners that deserve nothing but wrath, that's you and me, and yet we get glory. And he delights in it. He's happy about it. Therefore, can you see, when you walk out these doors and someone is blessed, you can truly say, that's awesome. I'm so happy for you. Because it's not about you anymore. Or you can, when someone is hurt or is being crushed, you can weep with them without it threatening your core. Only at the cross. Only by seeing the the man that we're following, Jesus, this is what's in his heart. Amen.